0: I want to join with John Micah in welcoming everyone today, especially those who are guests. Uh, We may have guests who are tuning in online. We welcome those who worship with us online. We always have a good number who do that every week, and we're glad you're here. But if you're a guest, Jen and I would love to meet you. As you are coming in, you may have noticed there's like 500 different ways of getting out of our auditorium. And so we have to announce each week where we're greeting. We're going to be greeting through these doors right here this morning. And so if you're a guest, we would love to meet you. Come out and say, hey, we're visiting today so that we uh, can get to know you and call you by name. We'd appreciate that. Let me mention a couple of other things that's going on. Uh, First of all, we are in need of teachers for next year in our kids' ministry. Molly Kate will be joining us. She's our new children's minister, becoming the first Of January and we'd love to have a whole group of volunteers ready to help her. You can sign up back here in the back foyer. Also uh, if you're going to discover Hendersonville that's room 101 right down to the left and then we're also uh, trying to help out those in the manor over here. We have two buildings over here called Christian Manor and we're going to be doing an angel tree for them. You can go in the back and if you will donate gift cards to Walmart, Kroger, Cash Savior, Dollar General, whatever, $50 amounts, it'll go toward helping people over at the manor. We'd appreciate it very much. And then on a less positive note, uh, we lost a dear brother yesterday. Brother uh, uh, Philip Brim passed away. Uh, Philip had been sick for quite some time and then it just really taken a quick turn for the worse, and we lost him. We don't have arrangements yet, but our sympathy goes out to Trina and all the family, and we'll keep you up to date on arrangements for him. As you go, last week, I tried to shock us. And, and, and that was the intention, was to shock us with the reality of Christianity in America today. And I, I threw up some graphs. Here is one of them uh, that kind of shows where we have come over the last 50 years in America. Uh, in 1972, about 90% of all Americans claimed to be Christian. Uh, and so a lot of us, remember growing up in that era. I mean, especially here in the South, a lot of people went to church. Almost everybody I knew went to church somewhere. Today, that number has dropped to 63%, with only 20% of all Americans going to church every Sunday. And so those numbers have drastically come down. At the same time, there's been this dramatic rise of what's called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. People who, when asked what their religious preference is, says nothing. Uh, They may be atheistic, they may be agnostic, or they may not even care about religion anymore. Simply not on the radar. They don't even think about it. And you see that that number has gone up to almost 30%, and then when you look at the younger generation, the number is closer to 40%. And I was hoping what would happen as a result of us thinking about that last week is that it would wake us up. Jesus over in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 as he's addressing the seven churches of Asia said to some of those churches, it's time for you to wake up. And I I think if he could say something to us today, even here at Hendersonville, it would be it's time to wake up. And then when you think about churches of Christ, our own fellowship, this is from 21st century Christian and it shows basically from about 1990 all the way to about 2020, about 30 years, and you can see the dramatic drop. We lost some 160,000 members across the nation. I want you to think about that. 160,000 members. Now, Blake, I'm not good at math. You're you're a businessman. I believe that's 160,000-member churches. Is that correct? Now, here's what I want you to think about that. 160,000-member churches. Five years ago, in the United States, there were only 30 Churches of Christ, over 1,000 members. We were one of them. And then COVID hit. And the average church lost 15% of its membership. That's what happened to us. And so we're not up at 1,000 anymore. But when I think about over the last 30 years, we've lost 160 if we had that many 1,000-member churches. We've lost 160 of them in just the last 30 years so the question is, what do we do? And more importantly, what do we do here at Hendersonville? I mean, we can't fix it across the nation. But we can do a better job here. And, and that's where we've got to begin. What do we do to change this? In our motto last week or, or at the end of last week, we looked at, you know, what do we do? And there were several things that I suggested. Number one, that we need to create a church that is a loving, friendly, and welcoming family of believers. And I'm gonna talk about more more about that here in just a moment. Because oftentimes we think we are. You know, we're 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 a friendly church, we're a warm church, we we love one another. Ah, oh, We need to step back and look at it through a different lens. Number two, we've got to re-educate ourselves, especially in relationship to the nuns. Paul, when he went to Athens, didn't quote Scripture. Why? Because Scripture didn't mean anything to them. I mean, the, the Athenians were not people who understood the Jewish Scriptures. And so Paul quoted from you know, Greek philosophers and Greek poets. Why? Because he's trying to communicate. We've got to re-educate ourselves to be able to do the same thing. Number three, we've got to re-reach out and try to win back those who have quit Christianity. I mean, basically, you've got 40 million people who over the last 30 to 40 years have just, they used to go to church, they don't go anymore. And many of those happened in the year 2020. As COVID struck... I mean, so many people got used to not going to church that when we began to reopen our churches, they just decided not to go back. And then the last one I think is the most important. We must reclaim the Great great Commission with intentionality. And by that I simply mean that we have got to get serious about this. It can't be just the preacher's job or the minister's job or the elder's job. It's got to be all of our jobs. I mean, we've got to realize that we are the people of God. We're the mouth of Jesus. We're the eyes of Jesus. We're the hands of Jesus, the feet of Jesus. We've got to be Jesus to the world. And so our theme has been this year, As You Go. This is from the ISV. And and basically the point of this translation is that all of us are going somewhere. And as we go, we need to be intentional about sharing the message of Jesus Christ. But here's the point we have to realize that's the most important point of all. And that is that there can be no great commission without the great commandment. And and I say this with as sincere a, 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 a way I can say it. That until we learn how to love, love God and love one another, Lawyer came up to Jesus near the end of his time on earth and said, would you mind telling us what's the greatest of the commandments? I mean, with 633 commandments. I mean, that's a lot of commandments. Which one's tops? And you would think that Jesus would have picked maybe number one in the 10 commandments, but he doesn't. Jesus immediately goes to the heart of the problem in ancient Israel. And he says, the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. And if you're a Jew, you know immediately that he's coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is the giving of the law for the second time. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. And and basically, this passage begins with the Shema. This is a prayer that every Jew would pray every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then, having given the Ten Commandments back in chapter 5, he says, can I give you the, the key to keeping the Ten Commandments? And that key is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. That's what you've got to do. Loving God is an intentional act. It's a commandment. It's something that we can decide to do. And it's got to be practiced both individually and in community. Individualism in America has hurt us. It's made us think that, you know, it's just all about me. Or if not me, me and my family. And it's not unusual at all for people to say, you know, my relationship with God is just me and Him. And that's all that's involved in it. And and while I understand why, you know, coming out of an individualistic mindset, mindset, you could see that, that's just not the way the Bible presents it. We were born into community. And God wants us to love Him both individually and as part of a community. You go back to Deuteronomy 6, right before this Shema and this greatest of the commandments. Moses writes these words. These are the commands, decrees, and laws. The Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, their children, after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of His decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy Long life. I don't know about you, but that last phrase there, so that you may enjoy long life, in many ways, describes to me the American dream. I mean, I just want to be able to enjoy my family. Enjoy my kids, my daughter-in-laws, my grandsons. I want to watch them grow. I want to see them prosper. I want to see them happy. And here's God saying, you know what, you you line your life up in order with me and that's what I'll promise to do. Not that every one of us will experience that. I mean, there are things in life, of course, that happens to us. But basically, God says, when you live the way I designed you to live, long life is, is what happens to most of you. But God wants to bless more than just you, your children, and your Grandchildren. As much as we would focus on them, God says, no, you got to get your focus wider than that. And so Jesus says in the second commandment, is like it. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. I remember several years ago, I was at church. It was a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. I don't remember which. And a brother motioned for me to come over to him and he was sitting at the end of the pew And so I went over to where he was sitting and he said I want to tell you something I said okay he said I think I can finally truthfully say that I love God more than my own family I've never had anybody to tell me that ever And I think he told me that because he was struggling with his love for God. I mean, that question, do you love God with all of your being, was bothering him. And and he had finally got to the point of where he needed to tell someone, I think I finally crossed over. I think I finally gotten there. Not that he might not relapse from time to time, but he finally could say, God, you're first in my life. And, and to love God then gives us the freedom to love our neighbor as ourself. A lawyer who asked Jesus basically the same question wanted to justify himself. And so he said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gives, as a result to that question, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, a story about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves who who robbed him, left him half dead. As he's laying there, three people came by. The first two were religious people. A Levite, a priest, the people who were closest to God who served there at the temple. And they both passed on the other side. And then a Samaritan came by. The bitter enemies of the Jewish people, the Samaritans were to the to the Jews, what the Palestinians are today. They're, you know, they're ones you don't want to hang around with. And yet here comes this Samaritan by, and he takes pity and he cares for the man, and he makes sure he's going to be okay. And Jesus turns to the lawyer and he asks not who is a neighbor. Who is a neighbor that these people reached out to? He said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? In other words, he flips the question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, will I be a neighbor to someone? And that's a totally different question. I mean, I can't limit that. If I figure out who my neighbor is out there, I can make, oh, that's that's my but this is not my neighbor. But when the question becomes, who am I a neighbor to? A lot of us saw our kids go up on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? I don't know if you saw the movie starring Tom Hanks. It's a fantastic movie. He was an incredible man, Fred Rogers. But, but the question he asked, as good of a children's program as it was, won't you be my neighbor, is the wrong question. The question needed to be, can I be your neighbor? Can I be a neighbor to you, regardless of who you are? And so we're faced with a question To whom are you willing to be a neighbor? Will it be the waiter who serves you lunch today? Will it be the person who checks you out at Publix or Kroger or Walmart? Will it be the person who just took a job there in the office with you? Will you be a neighbor to them? And we can just keep going down the list. Who are you going to be a neighbor to? Because if you can answer that question, you have the answer to the problem of why Christianity is not spreading in America today. Jesus, when talking about the importance of loving your neighbor he said you've been told love your neighbor but hate your enemy but jesus says but i tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you i don't know about you but this right here is the most challenging maybe of jesus commandments when it comes to our neighbors i mean if i'm going to be a neighbor i've got to love my enemies yes and by the way whether you love your enemy or not, let me let me go back to this. The best way to answer this, just look at your social media post. I'm not on much of social media. One is because a lot of it's technologically above me. Y'all some of y'all can relate to that. But more than that is how discouraged I get when those who have befriended me make posts and I look at the post and I go, that's not a post of a Christian. You see, you can't demonize your fellow Americans politically if God has told you to love your enemies. You can't do it. When God has told you to speak and pray for and, and, and hope for the best of those who lead you. And then we turn around and, and we post what we post on social media. That's loving our neighbors. I love the way Paul illustrates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. This one most of us just kind of goes over our head. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. They've got problems going on there. And when he writes the letter, he includes someone with him. Notice, Paul called to me an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. And and you see that, and most of us go, I don't know who Sosthenes was. I don't know what he did. and, And then you just keep reading. Watch who he is. Watch what he did. And read between the lines and connect the dots. Stan, thank you for connecting the dots always. Connect the dots about what happened. You see, you turn back to Acts 18. Paul's at Corinth. The work is going well and the Jews finally get fed up. And they say, we're going to take him out. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack. Look at that language there. United attack on Paul. Brought him to the place of judgment. In other words, they arrested him. They had him arrested. They had him brought into the courts. They're going to have him thrown in jail. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. The only problem is the Jews don't realize who they're in front of. Gallio is a Roman official who could care less about Jewish faith. And so when they bring him in and make charges against Paul, he said, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or even serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And then he drove them out. Look at the language there. In other words, officers, get rid of these people. And so all at once your Roman guards are driving the Jews out of the court and as they're going to the back of the building, the Jews now turn on their own. Watch what the text says. Then the crowd uh, there turned on the synagogue leader and beat him in front of the proconsul and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. In other words, they're getting back to the very back of the building and the Jews are so embarrassed and they're so ashamed, they turn on their own preacher. And they beat him up. And Galileo doesn't even call the guards. He just lets them kick him and hit him and beat him up. Don't get any ideas after services this morning. By the way, you want to guess who the synagogue ruler was? Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes. Sosthenes. Sosthenes the guy who's now writing 1 Corinthians with Paul. And you have to connect the dots because you have to wonder, so what happened? And my guess is Paul, after seeing Sosthenes laying on the ground, beaten up, I mean rejected by his own people, I I can't help but think that Paul walked over to him. And he kneeled down and he said, are you okay? Let me help you up. Listen, listen, listen. Can we talk? And the next thing you know, the guy who's wanting to get Paul thrown in jail now converts to Christianity and becomes one of Paul's closest companions. Why? Because Paul didn't walk up to him, and go, "You got what you deserved, didn't you?" That's what we'd wrote. That's what we would write on social media, right? You got what you deserved. No. Paul following the example of Jesus who looked down at the very ones who had nailed him to the cross said Lord, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Paul had learned how to love from Jesus who loved Saul of Tarsus even though he was persecuting him by persecuting the church. I don't think we realize the power of Acts 9 of where Paul's on his way to Damascus. Why? He's going to arrest Christians. He's going to to bring them back. He's going to vote to have them executed. I mean, here's a guy who is so filled with anger and hate. And and Jesus appears to him, strikes him down, strikes him blind. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and And Saul's response, who are you, Lord? And I can't imagine Saul's thoughts when he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And now I hope you stay blind. No. He said, i got a job for you. Job for me? After all I've done to you? Yeah. Because I see good in you. You see, you turn to the Gospels and you can't help but see that everywhere. I mean, Jesus is walking along a a, a leper. Luke says he's covered in leprosy. He approaches Jesus. You can imagine the apostles as they're backing up. It's a leper, it's a leper. And, And yet the man says to Jesus, you can heal me if you want you can cleanse me. And Jesus goes up and touches him. And all at once he becomes clean. I mean, what would have driven everyone else away caused Jesus to go toward him? A woman at a well who had been married so many times that nobody even wanted to marry anymore. A guy basically said, you can live at my house. I'll feed you. I'll give you a place to live. And you can fill in the blanks. And she has to go in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to hear the gospel and the laughter and all the looks that she would get by the other women in the village. And she looks at Jesus and says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I mean, the woman that nobody wanted to be around. I mean, the apostles show up and they didn't even say, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The apostles had gotten so used to Jesus reaching out to everyone they just took it in par. And the woman in Simon the Pharisee's house, who had heard enough about Jesus that, he, that she knew he was different, and when he arrived in the village and Simon invited him in his house, she came in and stood at his feet while he's eating, and she gets to crying. Because she knows who he is and what he's done and, and who he's reached out to and her tears falls on his feet and she gets down and begins to wipe it with her hair and kiss his feet and pour perfume on it. And Simon looks and says, he can't be a prophet because he'd know what kind of person she is. She's a sinner. Prompting Jesus to look at the woman as he says to Simon, do you see this? woman not a sinner not an outcast not not again fill in the blanks she's a woman created in the image of god how do we get there how do we start seeing people everywhere we go created in the image of god let me end with this right here do you remember the first time you learned typing or if you are younger than me, keyboarding, okay? <laughs> you know, you don't have typing classes anymore. When I was in high school, we had to take typing. And then, you know, years later, my boy said, you know, what, what are you taking this this uh, uh, year? I'm taking keyboarding. you taking what? You know, well, keyboarding, keyboarding is typing, except not using a typewriter. How many of y'all remember these? By the way, how many of y'all still have one? Wow. Okay, I, I don't have one anymore, okay? But I remember going into ninth grade typing class. Ms. Pickens was my teacher. Ms. Pickens was old. You say, what do you mean old? Miss Pickens had taught my mother when my mother was in high school, okay? I mean, it's, I'm a second-generation Miss Pickens student. And I go in and I sit down at a desk with one of these on it, having never typed in my life. Do y'all remember what that was like? I mean, today's generation, I mean, they start so young, they don't don't remember that. I remember it well. And, and, And by the way, learning how to type is the way we learn everything that we do. I mean, we go through a process. I mean, that process begins, by the way, this is what today's generation does, okay? That's today's generation. But how do we learn a skill? It begins with what is called unconscious incompetence. You can see Brian Shepard over here, and he'll tell you all about this. <laughs> and, and unconscious incompetence simply means that you don't know that you don't know. And so you walk into typing class, you sit down, and you look at—I mean, you look at—I I, got to go. You got—you look at a keyboard that makes no sense whatsoever. I don't know who invented the, key, the, the keys where they were. But, I mean, this is called a QWERTY keyboard. And you say, why QWERTY? Because Q-W-E-R-T-Y up there in the top left-hand corner. It's a QWERTY keyboard. I didn't know it was called that until just recently when I got messed up on my phone and I couldn't get my keyboard back. And my son said, well, go in and switch it to QWERTY. And I said, switch it to what? You know, I mean, again, I'm a little bit slow on some of this. I mean, you look at this and go, why didn't they just do the letters a, B, C, D?" And by the way, they do, some of them, J.K.L.'s right beside each other. And then you drop down one line and N comes before M. That makes no sense. And so when I sat down at the keyboard with my unconscious incompetence, I'm like, I don't know anything about this. And so she starts teaching us, Ms. Pickens did, and before long I began to realize just how incompetent I was. Conscious incompetence. We all go through it. I mean, you're like, okay, this is something I've got to learn brand new, yes. And now you're aware of it. You see, today we can leave here and not notice anybody around us. We can recognize for the first time how many people around us we don't recognize. Conscious incompetence. And then what happens is you go to conscious competence. Which simply means you begin to realize, okay, here's where the letters are on the keyboard. And and do y'all remember how you would, I mean, that first year of typing, T-H-E, you know. I mean, you're finally getting those letters down, and you're doing one at a time. And then what happens over time? What happens over time is unconscious competence. You get it down. I sit down at a keyboard now, and I don't even think about how you spell the letters. My my fingers just type, and the letters pop up there. Why? Because I've done it so long now that I am unconscious, but I'm competent in my typing skills. That's what Jesus was. That's what Saul of Tarsus became. Someone who didn't even have to think... You know what? This person may not be a child of God. He just automatically, they just automatically were drawn to people. Why? Because that's what the Great Commission does when it's based on the Great Commandment. The first step to becoming a disciple maker is learning to be intentional, unconscious, competence. I mean, we are there and, and, and we just do it because of who we are as children of God. And so this week, can I ask you to do these things? Number one, Ask God to increase your love for him. I know it's a command to us, but but faith is too. And, And one father one time says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I do love, but help what's lacking in my love. Number two, ask God to help you become a neighbor. Not to look for neighbors, but become a neighbor. Changes the whole way you look at the world. Number three, ask God to open doors. And let me just tell you, you better be prepared to see those doors because when you start asking God, send people my way, he'll do it. I promise you. And number four, then start listening. Because let me tell you, you can't build a relationship and I've had to learn this the hard way when you talk all the time. You've got to learn how to listen so that you get to know people. Who they are, what's going on in their life and most of all, who they need whose name is Jesus. I don't know where you are today in your walk with God, but let me challenge you. If you need to work on your love for him, work on it. I mean, pray about it. Worship with fellow believers. Spend time with God privately, one-on-one, because only when we learn to love him with all of our being will we learn to love the world like Jesus did. If you have a need, we have elders who will be in the front and back for you have names tags that says elders, go to them. I'll be down front. I'll be glad to help you. Whatever you need is, let us know how we can help right now as we stand and sing.